Welcome to the Further Light Podcast, brought to you and presented by Wisconsin Freemasonry, helping you accomplish your Masonic goals through education and more light. And now, I introduce to you, Brother Chris Ludke. This is Brother Chris Lickie, and today I want to explore Masonry Under the Reich, Part 2, Suppressing the Craft. And I'm going to give you a warning, this is a long one. There are times in history when you have to look at a topic, and there's not really a good way to break it apart. In this case, we're looking at the period 1933 to 38. And I could deal with 33 through 35, but then I have this very odd little portion for the last couple of years before the war. I could split it somewhere else, but it just ends up being very uneven. I want to make sure that the stories come out, that the stories make sense. And so this will be a much longer episode than usual. And just a reminder, my personal interests are in modern Europe social history, and myth-busting. This is right up my alley. This is also part two of what started as a two-part series, but now it's a six-part series. Up to 1933, this one, 33 through 38. And then the war, which will be two parts. Post-war, which is a part. And the forget-me-not, because I need to deal with that situation as well but I think that's its own episode. The following information is not an uplifting walk through history. In fact, I rather expect there's a reason, and you will see what that reason is, that Masons have glossed over this period. When we look at the source material, for example, much of it is by people who either aren't Masons, or they're fairly young Masons, only once in a while do we find something by more experienced brothers. And so that's telling. This is the sort of thing that we don't talk about. This is our best understanding of what happened during a forgotten, and when I say forgotten, I mean intentionally forgotten, period in Masonic history. And this is people's memories. You go through a horrific traumatic experience, whether as an individual or as a group. World War II in Germany would seem to qualify. You're going to change your memories. The mind is a strange place. You don't actually remember things accurately. No one does. Every time you recall it, something gets rewritten. And in these sorts of traumatic situations, you want to remember certain things, but you desperately want to forget certain things. And so that's why I think this is the correct period to do this, because we are now approximately 80 years since the war. We've had lots of hindsight and the distance of history, which helps. And it's given us some separation. So I think this is the time that we can really start dealing with that. I want to talk about sources real briefly. There's a number of sources that I'm looking at. In terms of text and background, I'm looking at 
Sir Richard Evans. The Third Reich, the coming of the Third Reich, and the Third Reich in Power, two of his three-volume series on the Third Reich. Brilliant history, very social history. So basically, what do the people on the ground see? Tying that in. William Shirer also writes a great book, The Berlin Diary, looking at his experience, 34 through 41. So again, what's going on on the ground? Something very important to note. I will also be looking at, uh, for small parts in this episode, Stalag Masons by brother Jeff Allen. I'll be looking at a dissertation called Compass, Square, and Swastika, Freemasonry in the Reich by Christopher Campbell Thomas, done for a dissertation, sorry, done for a doctoral degree at Texas A&M. I'll be looking at the Holocaust Museum's write-up of masonry during this period. It's very basic, but sometimes you need that real brief outline. I'll also be looking at Daniel Bennett, Fraternal Ties and Nationalist Eyes, The Fate of Freemasonry in the Age of European Nationalism. This was done as a master's thesis at the University of North Georgia. And there's not a lot that's written by Masons from this. As I've said before, it's something that we tend not to talk about. There will be a couple of other sources that I'll throw in, but those are the main ones. So, Let's get back to the history. First, I want to deal with the background so that you understand what the decisions are being based on. Now, Hitler will, of course, be elected. And what happens is, in November of 1932, there's an election in Germany. The National Socialists, the Nazis, will lose 35 seats during that election from where they were in July of that year. But they still get 33% of the vote. And so they get the first shot at creating a government. And they're going to have to create a coalition. And these parliamentary systems, just because you win most of the votes, doesn't mean you get to rule. It means that you get the first option of creating the government, of trying to get you plus another party or parties over 50%. Because then you can rule. After Chancellor Papen, who had been the previous Reich Chancellor, left office, he secretly told Hitler that he still held considerable sway with President Hindenburg, who is famous as a giant bag of hot air. Sorry, that's the Hindenburg Zeppelin. This Hindenburg is also a giant bag of hot air. But highly respected in Germany at the time. He's on his way out. He's the old sick man. Everyone respects him, but they know he's going to die soon. But Papen says that he would make Hitler chancellor as long as he, Papen, could be vice-chancellor. So this is going to be rather important. We also see industrial representatives, finance and agriculture representatives, asking Hindenburg to appoint Hitler chancellor. Hindenburg will reluctantly agree and appoint Hitler as chancellor after the parliamentary elections of November of 32 had not resulted in the formation of a majority government. So, what's going on? Hitler puts together a short-lived coalition with the National Socialists and the German National People's Party. Now, he will dump the National People's Party as soon as he gets through some of these decrees and takes full power. 
but they serve a purpose. They get him into the chancellorship. So on 30 November of 1933, a new cabinet is sworn in, and the National Socialists gain three new cabinet posts. We get Hitler as chancellor. We get Wilhelm Frick as Minister of the Interior. That name will come up again. And Hermann Goering, who starts as Minister Without Portfolio as well as Minister of the Interior for Prussia. The SA and the SS will lead torchlit parades through Berlin. It is this event that would become termed Hitler's seizure of power. And I should note here, my pronunciation of German is not good. And so there will be times where I'll simply go with the English because it's going to be easier for you to understand. I don't want to mix you up with a whole bunch of terminology that you don't really need to understand the story. So, we have Papen as Vice Chancellor. Papen is a man who likes to think of himself as very important, but he's incredibly ineffective. He finds himself in a majority conservative cabinet. Conservative is an understatement. They are far, far right, way beyond where we see most things today. And he still falsely believes that he could tame Hitler. In fact, everyone believes they could tame Hitler. How bad can this guy be? He's some short, angry Austrian. He's an art school dropout. Actually, an art school reject, if you want to be really accurate. How dangerous can he be? We can manipulate him. We can make him do proper things. We can bring him back to the center. We've all heard this in relatively recent history. And a year later, when we get to 1934, the summer of 34, Papin and others look around and go, wow, I think this may have gone the wrong way. Perhaps he has managed to manipulate us far more than we have been able to manipulate him. However, after a narrow escape from death on the Night of the Long Knives in summer of 34, Pepin no longer dared to criticize the regime. He will leave to Vienna. Eventually, he'll basically disappear from power. So, at the time, the German newspapers will write that without a doubt, the Hitler-led government would try to fight its political enemies, the left-wing parties, but that it would be impossible to establish a dictatorship in Germany because there was, quote, a barrier over which violence cannot proceed. Sometimes we see famous last words in history. Everyone assumes that this thing, whatever it is, can't happen. It can't happen here. Humans are really good at rationalizing, and this is one of those examples. Don't worry, violence doesn't speak here, but it's not violence that brings him to power. It's violence, as well as populism, a cult of personality, all sorts of different issues coming together. It's never simple. Now, as I mentioned last time, we have 11 Grand Lodges, multiple Grand Lodges in Germany. So I want to clarify what's going on here. In Germany, we see the lodges split between what's known as the humanitarian Grand Lodges and the old Prussian Lodges, and this refers to the Grand Lodges they're a member of. We have eight Grand Lodges by the First World War, and we have an additional three formed by 1930. So, we have 11 total Grand Lodges, 
in Germany, very small area. We see the Grand Mother Lodge of the Three Globes, Prussian Lodge. We see the Grand Lodge of Prussia, also Old Prussian Lodge, and the National Grand Lodge of German Freemasons. So those are our big Prussian lodges. Those are the old conservative, these are all 18th century, the end of the 1700s, they're being brought into power. Then we have the humanitarian lodges. The difference here is the humanitarian lodges tend to be a little more liberal in their views of who can join. And those are the Grand Lodge of Hamburg, the Grand Lodge of the Sun, very impressive name, the Mother Grand Lodge of the Eclectic Union, another impressive name, the National Grand Lodge of Saxony, the Grand Lodge Concord, the Grand Lodge Chain of German Brotherhood. So those are your typical humanitarian lodges. Then we have two at the end. They're considered humanitarian lodges, but they're very new, and they only recognize each other. So it's a very odd situation. They don't get along with the other Grand Lodges because of the way they're formed. First, we see the Grand Lodge at Nuremberg, and then one that will pop up a number of times throughout today's episode, the symbolic Grand Lodge of Hamburg. So the Prussian Grand Lodges generally enjoyed the protection of the Prussian kings up until 1870, and they admit only men with Christian beliefs. The humanitarian lodges admit men of any monotheistic faith, including Muslim, Jewish, which is going to be a problem, and Christian. All of the first nine recognize each other. The last two were not recognized by the other nine, evidently, because they did not conform to several of the ancient landmarks, which is always a problematic situation in and of itself, but not one we will get into today. So by 1930, there are about 100,000 Freemasons in Germany. So this really sets the stage for what we're dealing with. And by the way, Freemasonry is wider spread and more populous in Germany than anywhere else on the continent. Almost anywhere else in the world. Maybe the United States and the UK would have more Freemasons. But Germany is way up there. Way more than we would see in France or Italy or anywhere else. So, our stage is set. Hitler has come to power. Everyone's underestimating what he's going to do. Freemasonry in Germany is split amongst 11 lodges, two different uh, sects of Freemasonry, effectively, the old Prussian and the humanitarian. We have about 100,000 Freemasons in Germany. So Hitler's come to power. We're in 1933. In January, the cabinet will be appointed the government ceded, and the Nazis do very little. Really, the first couple of months, they do almost nothing from the outside. It's probably organization on the inside. Until we get to February 27th of 1933, the Reichstag fire. And this results in the Reichstag fire decree, which allows Nazis to imprison opposition, any opposition uh, person. This will be used against Freemasons, but also Social Democrats, Communists, pretty much anyone who didn't agree with the Nazis. This is a big reason a lot of people will join the Nazi party, or at least what is claimed after the war. Now, let me put this in context. Imagine someone shows up 
and sets fire to the U.S. Capitol building. That's going to take down the central symbol of our government. Just like the Reichstag fire does. It takes out the illusion of the parliamentary system. It becomes incredibly symbolic. Looking back at the time, it wouldn't have been. At the time, you have looked at and said, wow, there's some dangerous elements at play. They will blame it on. Just wait for it. Of course, you can probably guess a Jewish conspiracy. But at the end of the day, we see the Reichstag fire. Yes, we believe today that it was probably intentionally set. But that's for a whole different episode or a whole different area of history. So we get to March 6th, so we're about a week after the Reichstag fire. And the Grand Lodge of the Three Globes, so the Grand Lodge of the Three Globes is an old Prussian lodge, will be raided. When the members of the lodge, I'm quoting here from how the collapse of Freemasonry in Nazi Germany in 1933-35, when the members of the lodge of the Three Globes arrived at their premises for a meeting that evening, they learned that five SA stormtroopers in uniform and a number of civilians had just left the building. They had been received by a serving brother who asked for evidence of their respective identities. Quote, loaded pistols were their authority. According to a report signed by the grandmasters of all three Prussian Grand Lodges, which was sent to the Prussian Ministry of the Interior on 13 March. By the way, that's being sent to Gering, who is the Prussian Minister of the Interior. According to a letter, that letter, the intruders demanded the lodge's files, which were kept in a locked cupboard. Since the keys were not immediately available, they smashed the lock and began to remove the papers to a lorry waiting outside. They knew what they were doing. Now, this is a shocking development. It's going to terrify members. Because you notice they didn't go after art or furniture or assets. They didn't go after the building. They went after the records. They want to know who's a Freemason, but as we'll see in later episodes, they also want to understand how Freemasonry works so that they can build this conspiracy against it. So this is shocking to everyone, especially to the old Prussian Grand Lodges who are generally close to the German government. Now, about a month after the Reichstag fire, we will see the Enabling Act. This will suspend Parliament in the Reichstag and give Hitler supreme power. With the legal framework in place, all that was left was for the Nazi regime to execute their plans. So they have all the power they need. They've been in power for approximately two months. So let's talk about how the Grand Lodges react. The various Grand Lodges predictably react in different ways. Some begin to protest the rising anti-Masonic message being spread. What anti-Masonic message? Well, we talked about that in episode one. That's Ludendorff and others who are out there with their big Masonic conspiracy. The idea that there's a Jew-Bolshevik conspiracy and the Freemasons are acting as almost an arm of the Jews doing the active work while the Jews are in the background creating the ideas. Of course, we know that's not the case, but that's what's being spewed at the time. 
other Grand Lodges sought to prolong their existence by trying to convince the Nazi leadership that the craft and National Socialism could coexist. And this is where we get into the territory where things will start getting very uncomfortable. But history is frequently muddy and frequently uncomfortable. The more liberal and internationally minded Grand Lodges would be the first to close. They arguably saw the writing on the wall. They saw what was going on. They saw Hitler had all power. They said, you know what, we're going to close the doors as early as March and April of 1933. They do this, arguably, to protect their members. In some cases, they will actually take those records and burn them as soon as they dissolve. The Grand Lodge of the Sun uh, and the Grand Lodge of the Eclectic Union, both humanitarian lodges, will voluntarily dissolve in 33. The Union of the Rising Sun and Universal Masonic League, also humanitarian lodges, will similarly dissolve. So the humanitarian lodges, as a reminder, allow Muslim and Jewish members which makes their position rather untenable. You can't sit there and argue that, hey, we're good nationalists, good national socialists, when you're bringing in the people that they scapegoat for World War I and everything that's happened, every bad thing that's happened up until that point. So they really have no choice. The Grand Lodge of Freemasonry in Germany which is another one of those humanitarian lodges, sent a letter to its lodges asking them to stop panicking over the future of the order. They reassured their members that the order was on solid legal ground, and only the Minister of the Interior, soon to be Gering, currently Frick, could force a closure, quote, which they would never do. Don't ever say those words. Do not say that would never happen because from a historical perspective we're going to pick up on that at some point we're going to point to you and we're going to laugh and go he said that thing don't do it it's a great quote problematic and there are rumors floating around at the time that Gehring's father-in-law was a mason there are rumors that Hindenburg was a mason which he wasn't there are rumors that all sorts of people are Masons or have Masonic ties. None of this is true. But you can imagine where those rumors come from. Someone starts saying something or you hear something and it gets mistranslated. And suddenly you have hope. Oh, maybe they won't come after us because we're sort of related to Hitler, sort of related to Goering, sort of related to Speer, whoever it's going to be. At the end, it doesn't really matter. But they don't know that at the time. It's like, if you remember 9-11 or any other major news event, while the news is happening, we get all sorts of crazy things that come out. People thinking that they're seeing airliners flying toward Chicago or airliners flying here or there on 9-11, which we know isn't true. We get people arguing about whether they were snipers at the Capitol and all sorts of other things. And so when something is happening, people get confused. 
Things that are completely unrelated get tied in. And sometimes absolute falsehoods become news simply because we don't know, we haven't been able to filter yet, what's happening to determine what is or is not actually news. Moving on. In contrast, the three old Prussian lodges attempted to get closer to the regime. First, they sent congratulations to Hitler. By the way, they are offended that he doesn't write back. Yeah. We see a letter is written by the three grandmasters on March 6, asking for patronage, as they had received from the old Prussian kings. This is a matter of a bunch of guys who don't really know how to read the writing. Because there's a few groups that the Nazis really hate. The Jews, the Freemasons, the Bolsheviks, the Social Democrats, etc., etc., etc. But one of those groups is the old landed aristocracy. The people who used to be royalty in Germany up until World War uh, I. And they tend to have lots of land. And they're known as the Junkers class. And the National Socialists hate them. And so the idea that the old Prussian lodges are going to tie themselves to this old aristocratic class, well, it's not really a good idea. They also distance themselves, the old Prussian lodges, from other Grand Lodges, stating, quote, A species of Freemasonry has arisen in Germany, which is not only opposed to our conception of patriotism, but also to our Christian Viewpoint and our opposition to all kinds of internationalism. This quote coming from How, the Collapse of Freemasonry in Nazi Germany. These Prussian grandmasters complained that they were being discriminated against for being Freemasons. Again, I have shown there are newspaper articles, whole books written about the evils of Freemasonry, and they're arguing that this is almost shocking. Denial is a powerful emotion, a powerful human trait. Lodge member members were also quickly forced out of civil service, teaching, and professional jobs. Just like we see Jews pushed out of those positions, people who have the wrong political ideals are going to be pushed out of those positions. Freemasons will also be pushed out. Because in an ideological war, which we're in, even though World War II hasn't started, the National Socialists have come to power. The Nazis want to extend that power, and so you have an ideological struggle. And in those situations, you eliminate the enemy. You don't necessarily pull a pole pot and take everyone with glasses, everyone who's educated, everyone with those positions, and kill them. You simply remove them from their jobs and say, you know what? You're done. We're going to replace you with a second grade teacher who has the proper ideological bent. Which brings us to April. April 1933. Eventually, a representative of the National Grand Lodge of Germany secured a meeting with Hermann Goering. And the National uh, Grand Lodge of Germany is a Prussian lodge. But this happens, he meets with Hermann Goering on April 7 to discuss the future of masonry in Germany. 
This is like walking into the lion's den. Goering bangs his fist on the table and shouts, You damn pigs! I need to throw you and this Jew band in a pot. There is no room for Freemasonry in national in the National Socialist State. Taking that quote from the Thomas dissertation. He made it clear the Grand Lodges could shut down or the Nazi regime would do it for them. His premise was that Freemasons might be hostile to the Reich due to their connections to international Freemasonry. Just like in any kind of, well, for lack of a better term, abusive relationship, they're trying to isolate. And the idea that Freemasons are talking amongst each other internationally, well, that's a big problem. They don't want them doing that. They don't want them comparing notes and going, hey, this is happening in Germany, and the French are going, wait, what? Why are you putting up with this? Here, let us help you resist. They don't want that. The Prussian lodges would then transform. These three Prussian Grand Lodges become German Christian orders. So on the same day, April 7th, the National Grand Lodge, Prussian once again, passed a resolution changing the name to, quote, German Order of the Grail of the the Knights Templar. It went on to clarify in the same resolution, with this decision, the order has ceased to be a Masonic corporation. They are no longer Masons. Other lodges, other Grand Lodges, would follow suit. So let's talk about these new Christian orders. The remaining orders, now renamed, became overt nationalists. The new German Christian order of the Knights Templar required members be German Aryans and previously baptized Christian. By the way, when I talk about the new orders, these are the Prussian, the old Prussian Grand Lodges. The term Freemason becomes Disciple of the Order. So anywhere that you would see the word Freemason, that person is now referred to as Disciple of the Order. Lodges become convents. Now, that's kind of an odd term, right? We tend to associate that with uh, Christianity, with nuns, but actually there's something else there. The term is borrowed from the university corps or the university fraternities in Germany and is thought to be an attempt, according to Thomas, to redefine the lodge as a university social fraternity without the school. Back to what they're doing. All Old Testament symbolism, which of course could be tied to Judaism, is replaced with New Testament, Germanic, or Grail symbolism. The idea was to divorce these Grand Lodges from any trace of their Masonic roots. This is an attempt at survival, but it fools absolutely no one. Some Grand Lodges, now Orders forced non-Aryan brothers out starting in September of 1933. They defined Aryan. Now, we're used to seeing the idea of defining who's Jewish in Germany, but there are definitions of Aryan as well, and they're being applied within the fraternity. So they define Aryan as having two Aryan parents and four Aryan grandparents. Any brother with Jewish wives would also be removed at this time. This would become the Aryan paragraph and would be adopted by the Grand Lodges of Hamburg, 
Saxony, and the German Chain of Brotherhood. So, I'm looking at my list here. The Grand Lodge of Hamburg is going to be one of the humanitarian lodges, although one of the older ones, founded in 1743. We will also see the same as I look at my notes and try and compare where I am. Ah, the Grand Lodge of Hamburg, the Grand Lodge of Saxony, which is humanitarian, founded in 1811, and the German Chain of Brotherhood, humanitarian, founded in 1924. Now, they are not becoming Christian orders, but they are adopting the Aryan paragraph, going against a lot of the humanitarian ideas, such as allowing Muslim and Jewish brothers. Now, Aryanized these orders sought Nazi protection by characterizing themselves as, quote, 20,000 patriotic men who feel the call to collaborate in the building of the National Socialist State. And when I talk about orders, it's usually the Prussians, but not always. Like others, the humanitarian lodges came under attack as tools of the Jewish conspiracy. But the humanitarian lodges had far more difficult positions because they had a history of admitting Jewish members and having stronger ties to foreign lodges. Now, continuing throughout 1933, physical attacks, threats, and intrusions by SA stormtrooper units and the Gestapo will continue. For example, at Konigsberg, the Skull and Phoenix Lodge is going to be raided by Gestapo agents who, quote, spent six days reading over every conceivable document, including unopened mail. Again, looking for a conspiracy, but also looking for membership records. Many lodges accepted these changes because they believed they would decrease pressure on members who were being victimized for their association. Gehring, on the other hand, rejected the Christian orders and would order them, within Prussia at the time, to revert back to Masonic lodges. By the end of 1933, German Freemasonry as an institution effectively disappears. So here we are at the end of 1933. And the best term we can use, especially for the Prussian lodges, but also some of the humanitarian lodges, is collaboration. They're trying to get close to the regime. And from our perspective, our 2022 perspective, we sit there and say, oh my gosh, they're going for the wrong side, they must have the same ideals, etc. But there's always a pragmatism there. Imagine, if you will, that you are a Freemason, that you know your records have been taken, the Nazis have it. One of the first things you might try and do is join the Nazi party to show, hey, I'm a good German, I'm not part of any crazy conspiracy. There are lots of pragmatic reasons for this to happen. Many authors argue other views, that these were simply guys who were joiners, who had business contacts, who were used to these social organizations, and so they simply moved from one, the Freemasons, to another, the National Socialists. But there's always more to that calculus. It's never that simple. But let's move on. We're into 1934. In January, the three Christian orders still remain, the Prussian orders. Although attacks on membership 
would substantially decrease the rules. You can imagine you're not going to stay a member of Freemasonry if you're being attacked, physically attacked. Walking into the lodge, or you see the lodge being attacked, or whatever else. Lodges that voluntarily dissolved were not declared hostile at this time, and could avoid confiscation. Of course, it's never really that simple. They could not keep the property. It would be sold to the Gestapo for stock. And strictly controlled by Gestapo consent. They often refused to authorize sales and confiscated the materials and property anyway. Because why give the money away when you can use it to further the Reich? Plainclothed SA members continued to force their way into meetings to, quote, protect members from enraged populations. The idea being this myth that outside the lodge there would be people with torches and pitchforks, and the SA would come in and say, hey, we're just protecting you. We're definitely not listening to what's going on and trying to get to the bottom of the conspiracy or making notes of who's in the building. Also in January, the Nazi leadership passed a decree allowing them to forcefully close any lodge with less than seven members. So the smaller lodges will now be closed. And when I say the lodges will be closed, there are a number of times I'm going to say the lodges will be closed, and these are different levels. So first they go after the Grand Lodges, and then they will go after the lodges, and then some of the lodges will decide, you know what, we're going to continue without a Grand Lodge anyway. And we'll see those closed as well. So it gets a little confusing, a little muddy, but nothing here is perfectly clear. That's what makes it fun. So, in the same month, the Nazi Party and the People's Court, the People's Court is a moral court that operates within the Nazi Party, trying to keep them pure and well-behaved. But they rule that Masons who had not left Freemasonry prior to January of 33, when Hitler comes to power, could join the party, but could not be promoted. So if you had not left prior to January of 33, you could join. That's misquoted. Those who had left prior to 33 could join the party, but could not be promoted. Those who remained after January of 33 had to resign party membership. So now you're an outcast. And in Germany at the time, party membership is very, very important. January 16, 34, Gering is interior minister. He dissolves the Grand Lodge of the Globes, Prussian. The Grand Lodge of Prussia, Prussian, obviously. And the National Grand Lodge of Germany, Prussian. Stating, quote, there's no further need for their existence. In summer of 34, the Gestapo begin closing down the remaining individual lodges, and Grand Lodges are confiscating all material for later exhibitions, which we will get to in a later episode. The records, by the way, will be kept and archived so that they have a list of membership, and those lists will be passed around. And when we get to the broader European war... Some of those lists will find their way into other theaters, and they will always look for these lists at Grand Lodges in France, Belgium, and elsewhere as they conquer Europe. In October of 34, a young and very well-known Adolf Eichmann is given the job of creating an archive of Freemasons 
as well as to begin to understand the international character of the fraternity. We also see the rise of a group of men known as the V-Men. These are informers. These are people who would turn on their own lodges for their own reasons. And in some cases, it's because they were angry at the lodge or they felt they had been slighted by the lodge. There's a lot of different possibilities, but it happens. I use the term V-Men because the German term is ridiculously long with far too many consonants. But we have a couple of examples. One is Karl Busch, who's an informer in Bielefeld and provided one example of the practice. Now, he's a party member and he began working for the regime in August of 33. During his debriefings, he continually expressed his desire to bring the lodge down. So much so that the debriefer commented in his report on Bush's honest and sincere intentions. Interestingly, Bush, who is wealthy, independent of all of this, took no money, only seeking to put his time and talent toward the party. He offered to become a speaker on behalf of the party and was turned down because, as the debriefer notes, he took 10 pages to say something that should be said in 10 words, and we've all met that kind of person. The regime saw him as unswervingly opposed to the lodge. We see another informer who is a 33rd degree Mason. So they're coming from all different levels. They have their own ideas. We cannot take these ideas. We cannot look at what's going on in Germany and simply group everything together. Every member is going to make their decision based on a whole different heuristic, on a whole different basis. They aren't simply going to sit there and look at it and all decide at once, hey, we're all going to collaborate, and here's why. Because for some, collaboration is survival. If I can become a good national socialist, then they won't come for me, and I can live another day to support my family, my children, etc. For others, it might be for business interests or simply to maintain survival, you would need to join the party. There's a lot of different possibilities here. But of course, we can't go through a 100,000 Masonic stories to figure out why everyone's doing what they do. And also from this period, we see a lack of diaries and journals. A lot of people would destroy those in Germany after the war because anything that related you to the Nazis meant that you were going to have a rough time. Let's move on to 35. So 1935, in March, the grandmasters of the three remaining Prussian lodges will be forced to meet with the Gestapo and forcibly dissolved. First of all, meeting with the Gestapo is probably not your idea of a good time, much less knowing why you're going. So you could imagine the stress that likely went into that. By August, the Reich Minister of the Interior, Dr. Wilhelm Frick, stated it is inappropriate that a secret society with obscure aims should continue to exist in the Third Reich. It is high time that Freemasons' lodges should disappear from Germany. If this is not realized in Masonic circles, I will soon help them in that direction. I should note some of this is for propaganda purposes. So they're overstating how many lodges are still out there, how many brothers are still active. 
In a letter in August from the Bavarian political police, we see a quote, Freemasonry in Germany is completely smashed. From their perspective, it might be. From our perspective, it might be. We're probably down to 1-2% of all Freemasons still active in Germany. They've either walked away from the lodges or the lodges have been dissolved or whatever else. On 18 August 1935, Hitler's own paper announces the final dissolution of all Masonic lodges in Germany, blaming Freemasonry for incidents, instances such as the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in 1914, and for supposedly seeking another war to create a world republic. President von Hindenburg issued a decree at the same time charging that Freemasons' lodges, Masonic lodges, had engaged in subversive activities, and the Minister of the Interior ordered their immediate disbandment and confiscation of property from all lodges. This is from Jeff Allen's Stalag Masons. Now again, a lot of this is propaganda. They're basically out there saying, hey, look, we're shutting them down. We're shutting them down. In reality, they've basically, pragmatically been shut down for over a year at this point. By September 13, we see more lodges shut down. These are individual lodges. You can imagine if, for example, the Grand Lodge of Wisconsin ceased to exist, that many of the lodges would continue, maybe quietly, but they would attempt to continue. Because there's, for some brothers, a reason why they joined, and it's much stronger than what's going on around them. In October, the Interior Ministry issued a decree that lodges were in fact hostile to the state and were therefore subject to having their assets confiscated. Now, I should point out, we're seeing a continuation, we're seeing a spectrum, or an really an evolution, of the Nazi reaction to the lodges. At first it was, we'd like you to shut down, and then it was, you have to shut down, but you can sell your stuff, and that was, we're going to confiscate your stuff, and that was, you have to shut down, and we're just seeing this constant evolution. And most of it's being done for public perception so that they can put it in the newspapers. Look what we did against that Masonic problem. After the closure, former brothers wasted little time in creating and joining new social organizations. The SD, which is SS Intelligence, and the Gestapo feared these new groups would be the foundation on which Freemasonry could continue in a clandestine fashion. So, they give us an example. There's a Kegel club, Kegel is similar to bowling, in Ebbing, Elbing, excuse me, for example, which consisted of 20 members, all of which were former high-degree Masons, and the Germans, the Nazis, did refer to high-degree Masons, it's always people who went beyond Master Mason up the Scottish Rite. The club itself was known as Hansa, the name of their former lodge. They met in a private room in a restaurant. With the exception of the waiter, no one could enter when meetings were in session, which meant spying was kind of tricky. An investigation by the Gestapo even reported the club had begun to hang Masonic paraphernalia in the room and suspected the club was a front. Now, I should point out that Thomas, in his dissertation, mentions that this might have been more nostalgia than a recreation of Freemasonry in a different setting, but it's hard to say. The Gestapo and the SD had simply displaced Masons rather than destroying them. 
These groups would appear mysterious and threatening. The men had formed bonds of friendship as well as business contacts. So if they could not meet as Freemasons, they would meet as something else, just as long as they could keep meeting. And this is where we run into that problem of when do the lodges actually shut down? Because you have to define what's a lodge. If it's simply a group of brothers who meet together, then there's a lot more lodges. But if it's a formal thing with a building and everything else, then there's a lot less. Hence some of the confusion that we run into. Now, all this being said, talking about the Christian orders and the attempts at collaboration, there are those that stand against. I do not want to give the impression that there was no resistance. But we can well imagine very difficult and pragmatic decisions would have to be made under the circumstances. It should be noted that Alain Bernheim, a Masonic author, and others admit that it was only a handful of Freemasons, often between 1% and 5% is sort of quoted, who remained true to the ideology. Here I want to look at the symbolic Grand Lodge of Germany at Hamsburg, the youngest of the Grand Lodges, and its grandmaster, Leo Muffelman, who seemed to have belonged out of a sincere belief in Masonic ideology rather than ambition or social need. Right up to the closure of the lodges, Muffelman repeatedly condemned National Socialism, making him himself very popular with the ruling party. The Symbolic Lodge was a new Grand Lodge, only founded in 1930. Is also the smallest with only 550 members. The symbolic Grand Lodge was formed in response to increasing politicization of the other lodges and the treatment of Jews in these lodges. You can see they're becoming very popular already. When I say that, I mean popular with the party. Now, the symbolic Grand Lodge called for the literal interpretation of the old charges. Their constitution specifically stated that it accepted men, regardless of race, class, religious confession, or politics, and fostered true brotherhood, humanitarianism, and social justice. They were not immune to political division. They also published a journal, The Old Charges, that tended to castigate the parties at either extreme, calling them, quote, bears of barbarism and coercion. Now, Muffelman, as the editor of The Old Charges, that newsletter that goes out, made his opinion of the radical and reactionary movements well known by allowing such articles to be published. Nationalism, fascism, and Bolshevism, he declared, were, quote, all steps backwards towards the primitive but done through modern ideas. The goal of Freemasonry, he said, was to fight all three alongside any other group the condemned such radicalism. As attacks on the Masonic lodges grew, Muffelman declared that those brothers who clung to racial, class-based, or ultranational ideologies needed to quit the lodges. After Hitler becomes chancellor in 33, Muffelman, who had more reason than most to fear the Reich due to their anti-Masonic, excuse me, due to their anti-Nazi 
ideals, sought to calm his brothers and urge them to avoid speculation turning to panic, those rumors that we talked about, about Goering's father-in-law and others. While the old Prussian and humanitarian lodges tried to get in Hitler's good graces, Muffelman watched and shook his head as influential and distinguished gentlemen groveled at the feet of, quote, the Bohemian Corporal. He must have thought this was the very reason he broke away and formed the symbolic Grand Lodge in the first place. In his view, it had forsaken, or these other lodges had forsaken the old charges in favor of racism, class struggle, and nationalism. Very early on, March 28th of 1933, so before many of the other Grand Lodges will even dissolve, he receives a letter ordering the closure of the symbolic Grand Lodge. When the others have a choice, they do not. They are being ordered to close. They're just about the earliest non-voluntary closure that we find in Germany. Four days later, the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite chose to sever all ties to the symbolic Grand Lodge which was a major slap in the face since Muffelman was also a uh, significant member of the Scottish Rite at the time. On September 5, 33, Muffelman was arrested following a business trip to London. You can see where that would probably raise some red flags. And he would be sent to the Sonnenberg concentration camp. And note here, when I talk about concentration camps, they are not death camps. This is not Auschwitz. This is not Bergen-Bergen. What's happening here is these concentration camps can be understood as gulags or political prisons. They're massive places. They're horrific places, but they are not sent to the gas chamber. It's a very different idea. That whole thing, the gas chambers, the final solution is basically 1942 and later. So Muffelman is interrogated for four weeks, regularly beaten, and we know he suffers from a leg injury of some form. He will be released November 26th of 33, so about three months later. But the time in the camp had taken its toll, and he will die the following year. But not before he travels and sets up a new symbolic Grand Lodge in exile in Palestine. And he chooses Palestine because it's outside of the theater of the conflict. And he can find Jewish brothers who are willing to join based on his ideals. And for that reason, the symbolic Grand Lodge survives where many of these others will not. So he later reflects on his arrest, stating that he believed his association with the symbolic Grand Lodge of Germany, and moreover, the Supreme Council of Germany, was what led to his arrest. And he would be charged with the treason of Freemasonry. This connection is also evidenced by the fact that Muffelman revealed in his diary that, that the Gestapo had come for the Grand Commander of the Supreme Council at that time, but he was in Switzerland and therefore was not reachable. So Muffelman, of course, will pass uh, very rapidly after he is released within a year, and unfortunately, that's going to be the end of 
that story, but it is a story, a very strong story of Masonic resistance. To give you an idea of what's going out to the public, in 1936, the Berlin newspaper, known as The Attack, great name for a newspaper, quote, reported that Freemasons from the United States had assembled a fleet of 18 aircraft piloted by Masons to join the fight against Franco and fascist Spain. This is a big issue because in 1936, Germany has entered the Spanish Civil War unofficially, and they're going to test their new aircraft, their new tactics, their new bombers there. So it would be a big issue. And so they're creating this idea of this showdown between Freemasons and Germany. And Freemasons continue to be a boogeyman and enemies of the state, even though we've seen they've basically been dissolved. They no longer exist in any official capacity in Germany. By 1937, in July, we see the SS Second in Command, Reinhard Hedrich, creates a division of the SD the investigative group of the SS, to handle the investigation and suppression of Freemasonry. He wanted to purge Germany of, quote, a Jewish, liable, and Masonic infectious residue that remained on the unconscious of many. So giving this idea that, hey, there's this unconscious element of Freemasonry and we need to get rid of it. And how terrifying is that? It's no longer... These are buildings and symbols and things, but now it's unconscious. And you can't remove the unconscious, but you can continue to persecute it. Moving into 38, sadly, there were those Masons who did not cooperate, acquiesce, or criticize, instead chose more drastic action. One brother in Yulzen committed suicide due to harassment from the party court, from the people's court. Another, Walter Plessing, a mason from Lubeck, also committed suicide after joining, then being forcibly removed from both the party and the SA, which could be nearly a death sentence. If you can't join the party, you may not be able to work. If you can't work, you can't support your family. People starve. It's bad. With the approach of the war, Hitler backed off much of his previous hostility, and he would award partial amnesty to those who did not advance beyond the third degree. Again, the Germans have this idea that when you get to Scottish Rite and the fourth through the 33rd degree, that that's an advancement. It's their idea. But only if they gave up membership by the end of January 33 and had joined the Nazi party. So again, it's retroactive. So had you left Freemasonry by the time Hitler came to power and you didn't go beyond Master Mason, then you're fine. By the way, officers of the lodge also would not be allowed to join. Interestingly, former Masons were allowed into the SS and to become military officers. Likely due to skilled and educated nature to the skilled and educated nature of many members and a lack of manpower. This is a lesson from World War I. The Germans ran out of manpower. By the end of the war, Ludendorff wanted to draft girls as young as 16 into the army. They were just running out of people. And the Masons at the time, as we talked about in episode one, tend to be well-educated. They tend to be middle class and upper class, doctors, lawyers, professionals. 
And so you really need those people if you're going to get into this war effort. By the end of 1939, SD offices reported, quote, It may be presumed that the majority of individual Freemasons, like the rest of the public, are caught in the weight of recent events and are willing to be subject to political necessity. In other words, they're going to flip on their brothers. They're going to join us because they have no other choice. And as we see, and of course it's easy to see this with hindsight, they don't have the same hindsight we do. We can sit there and say, look, you know, it makes sense to some degree, but why did you do that? Why did you go ahead and collaborate? And in truth, this quote gets at it. They're caught up in the weight of recent events. The war has started. No one in Germany at the time really believes they're going to win this whole thing. Germany is little, less resources, not going to defeat Russia. They kind of see that. They think maybe they can get Western Europe, but not Russia. And if the United States comes in, everyone kind of knows at the time they're in trouble. So we see these quotes and you have to understand them in a different context. Don't read them as Masons overall. Read them as Bob. Brother Bob. Who sits the sidelines. And he sees everything going on. He sees Hitler coming to power. He sees the violence and everything else. What's he going to do? Well, he might well join the party. He also might well go ahead and go from trying to live his best life, as some would put it, to trying to survive. War tends to do that to people. Trauma tends to do that to people. And so, it changes the way we look at it. Brother Bob is making a different kind of decision than Freemasonry overall. So let's tie this up, because this has already gone long. Heydrich would say in Freemasonry, its worldview, organization, and policies. Masonic lodges are associations of men who closely bound together in union, employed symbolic usages, represent a supranatural, sorry, supranational spiritual movement, the idea of humanity, a general association of mankind without distinction for race, peoples, religions, social, and political convictions. What he's saying is unity is anathema to the German Nazi ethno-state. The idea that we can create a state, Germany, based on specific physical ethnographic traits. And that's going to be antithetical. It's going to be oppositional. It's going to be anathema to the ideas of Freemasonry, which are unity and acceptance across race, people's religion, social and political convictions, amongst other things. They're 